All right, if you're not already there, join me please in Luke 23. Uh, I know that last week's subject matter did not exactly make for easy listening, especially for the children who patiently sat here for a long time. Uh, trust me, I'm aware of that. Um, subject matters like that, the order of God's perfections, is not an easy thing to simplify. I trust you understand why it was necessary to at least deal with that a little bit. I rejoice to say this morning's subject matter is much easier, not in the sense of less weighty or less important, it's easier in the sense of technicality. Uh, here in Luke 23, this is a passage that's always fascinated me. I'll give some of the reasons why in a minute. But it's a passage that uh, we were in several years ago. Some of you have been through this uh, while I was here. Uh, but it's such a fitting emphasis for heading into this Resurrection Sunday season. Of course, this Sunday, most of you know, uh, whatever you think about the tradition of it, that's a, quite a lengthy discussion, but this Sunday is traditionally referred to as Palm Sunday. And of course, that name Palm Sunday comes from that event, which is recorded in all four Gospels, in which the Son of God enters Jerusalem for the Passover on a donkey to present himself as the rightful king of the Jewish people. And uh, it really was an amazing prophetic fulfillment. In Daniel 9.25, that incredible prophecy concerning the entire uh, history and future of the Jewish nation, that 70 weeks have been determined, 70 weeks of prophetic years, and that it would be 69 or 483 years from the time to the command to rebuild the temple until the coming of the Messiah. And when the Lord Jesus walked into Jerusalem or rode in on that donkey, it was 483 years to the day, fulfilling that prophecy quite specifically. Now what happened on that day? Multitudes hailed him as king, as savior, and ruler. Now, if you were a follower of Christ, standing there watching that, what would you think? What a great day. Look at, look at the multitudes lining the roadway. Look at the garments that are in the way. Look at the palm branches chopped down. Hailing him as king. Everybody wants the Messiah. And much of that same crowd, really within a matter of hours, is clamoring for his execution when he didn't give them what they wanted. And when I see a palm branch, I know it's a symbol of the tropics. I look at a palm branch and I think, what a symbol of the fickleness of human nature. Of wanting a savior from problems. A savior from government. A savior from human enemies. But not preeminently a savior from the power and the penalty of our own sin. You see, most of the Jews, why were they cheering on that day? They were cheering because of their wrongful expectation that this king of the Jews was there that day to throw off the Roman government. That didn't happen. I mean, when reading this chapter, you can just sense this rising tide of satanic rage. When all the angels of heaven must have watched the proceedings with rapt attention, maybe even amazement. 
Can you imagine for the angels watching the Son of God delivered into the hands of sinful men to be betrayed and crucified? The forbidden fruit consumed so long ago in Eden was finally coming to full fruition when the only sinless man who ever existed was sentenced to die because the world couldn't tolerate a righteousness that exposed their corruption. Now, in Jerusalem, of course, there were vast multitudes, tens of thousands, probably over a million people present. It was a very, very festive atmosphere. Can you picture that? Traveling families, playing children, all the ends and places to stay are full. People camped out by the roadside, animals tied up all over the place, all kinds of visitors. The local businesses having the yearly boom from all the Jewish tourists coming down for the time of the Passover. And added to that was those who came because of the fame of this miracle worker from Nazareth. I wonder, what do you see when you look at a crowd? For one thing, I see a place I don't want to fish. But what do you see when you see a crowd? You and I tend to see the crowd as one entity. Do you know that God does not see crowds? There's no such thing as blending into a mob before God Almighty. God looks at a crowd, whether it be thousands or millions, and he sees individual faces, individual souls, individual people with a coming day of accountability, and he sees all of them as perfectly as though they were the only ones alive because he's infinite. It's interesting to note in the four Gospels, one of the, one of the big emphasis is in there several. In fact, we may do a message. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. On the spotlight of the Gospels, what exactly? Men are actually surprised when they uh, take a panoramic view of the Gospels and see what areas of the Lord's life are actually the focus, what, what actually is emphasized. But in the four Gospels, one of the things that's emphasized is the reactions of people to Jesus himself. I mean, in fact, that's Luke 23. The Lord Jesus is, of course, the centerpiece. But the entire chapter, one after another, after another, after another, it's the reactions of different people to this King of the Jews. Oh, really, how many questions in life really matter? Well, there's several. I get that. But there's really only one that matters ultimately when all the dust of life clears. And it's not so much who is Jesus Christ because that is settled. Uh, regardless of what the postmodern mind says, who Jesus Christ is is forever settled. It's been well documented and it's inarguable to anybody who's willing to just have an open mind. So who Christ is has been settled. But who is Jesus Christ to these people? And who is he to you? And think, all of your eternity hinges on your heart answer to that question. 
This crowd that's gathered in Luke 23, the people themselves are passed off into eternity. They're gone. They're either in heaven or hell. But their thought processes, their reactions, their opinions to Christ, about Christ, have been repeated in the, in the minds of mankind ever since. In fact, if you spend much time dealing with the souls of men, you can think of people you've known that embody every one of these mindsets we're going to talk about. Truly, there's nothing new under the sun. So we're going to spend some time, this is going to end up being this week and next week, looking at some of the faces in this crowd at Calvary. And have a great deal to teach us if we have ears to hear. All right, now face number one is that of Pontius Pilate. We see him in verse one. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. Now, why did they do that? Actually, this uh, Pilate, the governor of Judea, was the fifth governor of Judea during the earthly life of Christ. Now, I think sometimes on a surface reading, he looks a little bit innocent. Uh, he comes across, maybe without paying more attention, as a guy who just wanted to make people happy. A poor guy who's caught in the wheel of circumstance. Just wanted to help the Jews put a smile on their face. Actually, a careful reading of the New Testament as well as historical records that supplement that paint a far more sinister picture. The reality is few rose the ranks in Roman politics without stepping on some of their fellow mortals. Hasn't politics always been like that? Just ask Andrew Cuomo. That's how American politics has become too. But regarding Pilate, the historian Philo says that he was a man of unbending and recklessly hard character. Quoting Philo further, he describes the reign of Pilate as one of corruptibility, violence, robberies, ill treatment of the people, grievances, continuous executions without even the form of a trial, endless and intolerable cruelties. Not exactly a fine fellow. Now that may have been why the Jews pushed him to execute Jesus because of his past performance. It was nothing new. Pilate had put many men to death without a real trial. And the Jews were aware of that and thought, ah, what an opening we have to deal with our problem. Now it's important to understand the Roman government was in many ways very tolerant towards the Jews. When they conquered a province or a country, they would generally let the citizens live and let live so long as they were subject to Roman rule, paid their taxes, and worshipped the emperor. Now take that last one off in the case of the Jews. All other provinces were ordered to worship Caesar except for them. In fact, they were allowed to carry out their normal temple worship, and it was actually protected by the state. As long as twice daily they offered a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar and the Roman people. Uh, there were times in those first centuries that the Roman government actually upheld the law 
of no Jew or no Gentiles in that inner court. In fact, there were times where the Roman government would put some of its own citizens to death if they stepped into the inner court of the temple. So Rome itself would back up the Jewish worship to a point or at least give them freedom. In fact, the emperors usually required their soldiers, when they came into Jerusalem, the emperors would make their soldiers put away the flags that were bearing his image because he knew the uproar that would cause among the Jewish people. So the highest authorities were generally tolerant, but Rome on the map is quite a distance from Jerusalem especially when you don't have Zoom conferences and jet airplanes. So the problem was the average Roman official on the ground directly over Jerusalem disregarded those favors and could get away with it. So by this time, the Jews had a succession of governors that had all but lost all bearing of right and wrong, and Pilate was one of the worst. His first act in office was to intentionally inflame the Jews by sending Roman soldiers into Jerusalem carrying those flags bearing Caesar's image. The Jews were furious. A standoff and a mob ensues. The soldiers draw their swords and surround the angry mobs and the Jews pulled down their robes and said, stick the sword right here, but we're not backing down. Well, in that case... Pilate had his men back down, but other times he did not. One of the uprisings caused by Pilate was when he confiscated the temple treasures to fund an aqueduct into Jerusalem. At another of the Jewish protests, he planted some of his own soldiers dressed in civilian clothing right in among the people with clubs hiding under their robes and let them cut loose and beat several of the Jews to death. And then in Luke 13.1, we're not told much about it, but we're told of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, what does that mean? We don't know all the details, but there were some from Galilee who had torqued Pilate off to the point where while they were right in the act of offering animal sacrifices, he had them hacked down so that their blood spilled with the blood of the sacrifice. Oh, that wouldn't make the Jews upset at all, would it? So the reality is the situation is that Pilate despised the Jews, and the Jews had nothing but disdain for Pilate. But they bring this supposed blasphemer to him because it's their best chance to have him executed. But see, now Pilate's stuck between the proverbial rock and hard place. He wants to placate the Jews because he's already in hot water from Rome for not controlling the uprisings in his own jurisdiction, many of which he had caused. But on the other hand, whatever conscience he has left was very, very troubled because he knew Jesus was innocent. He knew he was delivered up for envy and he could see right past the flimsy accusations. Can you imagine Pilate in his pomp and splendor? He's seated in the judgment hall going through this mock trial, and his wife has a note sent to him 
And in the middle of the trial, he would open this up and look at it. And what did the note say? His wife said, I had a dream about him. You have nothing to do with that just man. (laughs) You talk about a stop sign from heaven being given to him. In John 19, the Jews are trying to further accuse Christ. And they said, we have a law and he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. It says that made Pilate terrified. Pilate goes back into the judgment hall and he asks him, Whence art thou? Where are you from? The Lord says, Nothing. Oh, Pilate's mad. Don't you know I have power to kill you and release you? And the Lord says, You have no power except what's given you from above. Pilate seeks to release him from that point onward, but you see, he feared the men. He feared losing position and face. He feared losing the money and the prestige. And when the Jews cry out in John 19.12, if you let him go, you are not Caesar's friend. Well, that hit a nerve. So even though this man lived in Israel, he had access easily to their scriptures and knew their history. And even though something inside told him Jesus was no ordinary man, even though he had private interviews with him, he looked into those eyes. He actually saw the blood spilling down that blessed face that could have taken away his sin. Even though his wife was given a dream telling him to stop, He committed the greatest injustice in the history of creation and delivered Jesus to death, releasing a murderer in his place. And then there's that pathetic washing of the hands. Oh, I'm not guilty of this. I don't really know what I'm doing. Baloney. John 18.38, Pilate had asked the question to Jesus himself, what is truth? There's the words of an agnostic. And he asked that question to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So in spite of the light given, Pilate decides the cost to explore it is too great. There's many like that. Opening their mind to the truth is just too costly. The opinions of their fellow creatures is of far more value than that of their Creator. And their eternity is traded for the passing opinions of mortals. How about another face in this crowd? We see him in verses 6 and 7. When Pilate, heard of, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. His second face is that of Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod's called an Idumean. The whole family of Herod's was. They were the last known descendants of the Edomites or those from Esau. They were a complicated family. This Herod here is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great, the infamous murder of the Bethlehem children. Now, Herod the Great had had even some of his own sons executed because he was so utterly jealous and suspicious. 
But just before his death, Herod the Great changed his will, and he put Archelaus, one of his sons, as king, and he put Herod Antipas, this Herod, his other son, as tetrarch, or lesser king, of Galilee and Perea. Perea is over on the east side of the Jordan River. So immediately, both sons on the death of Herod the Great, both of them traveled to Rome to meet with Augustus Caesar to present their case why they should be king. Hey, the will says it's me. No, you know dad was starting to lose it at the end. I think he meant me. And Antipas loses... And he stays tetrarch of Galilee and Perea with a big chip on his shoulder. Now, like his father, his reign was one continual grasping for power. One building project after another to make a monument to himself. An insatiable desire for wealth and pleasure. And a man who would defend his territory at any cost, morality be hanged. But then, interestingly enough... John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth both have their ministries primarily in his jurisdiction. Neither one could escape public attention for long. John was beyond Jordan, which was in Perea. Jesus was in Nazareth and mainly Capernaum, which was up north in Galilee. So John the Baptist and Jesus were both in his jurisdiction. Of course, multitudes came to hear John, hundreds of thousands of them, which became a threat to Herod's power. John is, of course, in prison for reproving Herod. But Herod had a resident conscience still active himself. Mark 6 records, Herod still heard him gladly and feared him and did many things. Herod was very much a Jekyll and Hyde, like many are when they're opposing themselves when they're outside of Christ. They can go back and forth very quickly. So John is beheaded. John is removed from the picture. Herod thinks his problems are over in that respect. Remember, John did no miracle. John was a preacher. Boy, could he speak. Well, here comes this miracle worker from Nazareth. And he's healing entire towns. You know, I believe the number is 24 different times it's recorded the Lord healed an entire town. You think that news came to Herod? Well, sure it did. Herod actually thinks that Jesus is John risen from the dead, come back to haunt him. He thinks at first Jesus is like John's ghost. You think that man had a troubled conscience? You bet he did. Wait a minute, king of the Jews was the title that Herod Antipas wanted. Luke 13, 31, the religious leaders try to scare the Lord and say, well, you better get out of here because Herod's trying to kill you. And the Lord says, go ye and tell that fox, that sly, sneaky, deceptive individual, he basically tells him, I'm going to do my miracles now, and then I'm going to be perfected or resurrected the third day. And since tell Herod, I'm carrying out the ministry of my father, and even if I'm killed, which by the way won't happen until I say it's time, I'm going to come right back out of the tomb. So, translation, I'm not scared of Herod, I'm going to go continue to do what I've been doing. 
Now, Herod had never met Jesus face to face until what's recorded here in Luke 23. He had come down at the time of the Passover from up north. He was in Jerusalem. And Pilate sees his opportunity to pass the buck. Let's see, maybe I can get out of this. You say Herod's in town. This guy's from Galilee. Now, verse 8 When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see of him a long season, because he'd heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. See, Herod's glad to see him because he can assess the risk to his own many kingdom. And of course, he desires a miracle. Isn't that pathetic? Treating the Lord of glory like some chimpanzee in a cage? Hey, do me a trick. I find it astounding, or maybe I should say perfectly fitting, that the Lord perform miracles for the poorest beggars, but refuse them to the powerful rulers. Do you know why that is? Because omnipotence, divine power, shows mercy to all, but it as it, it, it's at the beck and call of nobody. God is not man's servant. Verse 11, Herod and his men of war set him at naught. Now what does that mean? It means they made him as nothing. The creator of all men made nothing by the vilest of his creatures. That still happens today. You know what somebody's doing when they use the name Jesus Christ as a swear word? They're setting him at naught. They're making him as nothing. They think that because they feel like they're in charge of their earthly existence, they feel like it gives them some kind of power or authority to curse that name. Just to prove, I'll make Jesus bow before me. I'll say bad things about him. And look, he won't do anything about it. That must prove I'm in charge. They mocked him. They put him in a gorgeous robe and they knelt down before him hail king of the Jews they sent him back to Pilate and by the way verse 15 Herod comes up with the same basic judicial assessment I find no fault in him it's amazing that two of the most pragmatic perverse and wretched individuals in that time frame, both were in a position to make an assessment judicially, and both said they find no fault in him. See, Herod determined that this miracle worker from Nazareth in his weak, humiliated state was no threat to his own rule. Believe me, if Herod thought he was a threat, he would have tried to have him killed. But Herod also reasoned that he was no help either. So he did not free him as he could have. So who is Jesus Christ to Herod? Well, to Herod, Jesus was tolerable. In fact, to Herod, Jesus could even claim to be king. As long as Herod didn't have to take the crown from his own head and bow his own knee. There's many like that today, too. They don't mind the name Jesus. They don't mind sitting in church. 
They don't mind talking about faith and love and God and the Bible and everything else. But when it comes down to it, they're still seated on the throne. The crown is still on their own head. And they'll tolerate the Jesus of the Bible so long as they aren't required to bow and to repent. Now verse 12, Pilate and Herod were made friends by this whole ordeal. Isn't that fuzzy? Now, through making a mockery of the Son of God, and this still happens, <laughs> evil men can set aside their differences and come together. Some of us have seen this in a lower earthly political sense. Now, here's something politically incorrect. Have you ever noticed the Muslim world's always fighting itself until they have a chance to fight the West? Then they're the best of friends. And then they go back to killing each other again. Well, Pilate and Herod are united in their hatred, their mockery of the Son of God. Now again, they would tolerate Him, but they sure weren't going to put their own neck out to free Him either. Now someday, both of those men are going to be part of the mockery on the other side of the great white throne judgment. You think both of those guys are going to appear after the world has been vaporized and passed away. And they're going to be left suspended at God's pavilion before who? Before Jesus Christ. Not arrayed like a humble carpenter or a criminal with blood and gore hanging off. He'll be arrayed in righteousness that's out of reach of these two men for good. All right, now we've looked at two rulers. Let's look at a face from different circumstances. In verse 18, And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man! What the Jews still call Christ today, by the way, the lost Jews, this man. Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. You see, Pilate had a custom of releasing a prisoner to the Jews at the Passover every year, sort of like throwing a bone to the dogs in his mind. Now, Barabbas was a well-known murderer and insurrectionist. He'd led some sort of uprising against the Romans. Now, I find it very ironic, maybe you do too, that Barabbas was truly guilty of the very sins that Jesus was falsely accused of. He's being accused of stirring up the people against Caesar. Barabbas had actually done that, and they're asking for him to be released. I thought insurrection was a bad thing. Wait a minute. How inconsistent. Now, what would make reasonably intelligent people ask for the release of a savage killer and rebel while the Prince of Peace is incarcerated on death row? What would make them do that? Partly because Barabbas was some sort of folk hero. He was the embodiment of what many of them fantasized about doing to Rome themselves. But more than that, because Barabbas was one of them at heart. You see, Barabbas bouncing around society wouldn't expose their sin. Darkness doesn't have a quarrel, essentially, with more darkness. It's the light that it hates. There's really two amazing parallels here. We can see ourselves in Barabbas. 
hideous lawbreakers and insurrectionists against the authority of God condemned to execution and rightly so and having been spared our just deserts while Jesus has all the guilt shame blame and wrath laid on him you and I are like Barabbas what's the other parallel it's like this world system what do they want they desire a murderer and insurrectionist to be given to them because Satan is both. He's a murderer and an insurrectionist against divine authority. And of course, the world rejects the true Savior and they take the devil instead because satanic influence will not expose their sin but will encourage it. So will fake Christianity, by the way. So most of humanity follows the God, lowercase g, of this world. What about Barabbas himself? We don't know a lot about him besides what I've said, besides his crime and release. But without a miraculous change of heart, he went right back to his old sins. But you have to wonder, what if Barabbas had stood up and said, hang on, I refuse to be pardoned because I know that man's not guilty and I refuse to be released while he stays here. You know what probably would have happened? On a hill far away, there would have stood four rugged crosses. Barabbas on the fourth. And the Jews would have skipped the custom that year altogether. Who was Jesus to Barabbas? Well, Jesus was the one who took the blame and died to deliver him from the consequences of his sin so that he could keep on living in it. You know, the gospel according to Barabbas, like what I just mentioned, is alive and well. And somebody says, oh, I, I, I trust Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I'm going to... I, I'm a Christian now. And many of them, what they mean is I've come to Christ for some kind of fire insurance plan. I've come to abuse the doctrine of eternal security by thinking that once I repeat that or get dunked in that or come forward or make some sort of profession, I'm going to go on living like I did before. I lived the gospel of Barabbas for years before I really came to Christ. I rejoiced that I could do whatever I want. I rejoiced in iniquity. I knew the tenets of the gospel. I knew who Jesus was. But there was no sense of subjection. There was no change of heart. Jesus died to give me the power to live how I want it. No. No. All right, now one more group of faces this morning. Verse 27. <clears throat> And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Let me say something about the wording. It's not saying women are not people. What that wording means is especially women. So the gospel writer is saying there's this. Can you picture it in your mind? Here's Simon bearing the Lord's cross. Here's the Lord stumbling along near him. 
And following behind is this huge crowd comprised mostly of women. And they're weeping and they're wailing and they're clutching their garments and their makeups running down their faces. And they're in great emotional distress over what's happening to this king of theirs. This group is only mentioned here in Luke's Gospel. Is this a bright spot in the narrative? The crying question has to be, were they genuine followers of the Lamb of God? Well, there were some of those present. I just mentioned Simon the Cyrenian in verse 26 who carried the cross. Now, we don't know a lot about him, but his sons Rufus and Alexander... Remember, Simon was just passing through. <laughs> and the Romans just grabbed him and said, You! You look like a sturdy chap. Get over here and carry this cross. And that's called being voluntold. You didn't tell the soldiers no. And they may ask you if you want to, but the only right answer to that is absolutely, and I'll do it now. So he's just commandeered out of his travels, heading a different direction, and all of a sudden he's walking towards this hill, carrying a cross for this man that up to now he doesn't even know. Now his sons, Rufus and Alexander, you can look them up later on in the New Testament. They became well-known Christians in the early church. It's very probable that Simon of Cyrene was also. What a story he could tell. Hey, let's all share how we came to Christ. Hard to beat Simon's, if that was your goal. We know that the disciples forsook the Lord and fled just before this, but in John 19... Both John and Mary are there at the cross when the Lord says, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He entrusted Mary into John's care. We know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were somewhere in that multitude, and it's likely there were others, although we're not told. And women did have a very prominent role in Jesus' ministry. I think it's hard to imagine what Mary was willing to go through to bear the virgin-born Son of God. The reproach, the scorn, the accusations. Remember, one of the accusations thrown at Jesus was, we be not born of fornication. Thirty years later, they are still accusing Mary of immorality. Rich women ministered to the Lord of their substance. I don't recall anywhere in the Gospels where a man gave him a dime. Mary of Bethany in John 12 anointed the Lord's feet and wiped with her hair. Why was that? She was one of the few who actually understood he was going to die. Others were in denial. He could say that to the disciples and they'd turn around and argue about who was the greatest. They didn't get it. Mary did. Women were the first at the tomb. They were the first to see the angels. They were the first to tell about the resurrection. But were these ladies genuine followers? I think it's pretty clear they're superficial followers only caught up in the electricity of the moment. I'll explain why in a minute. See, here's the deal. It's not enough to have pity on Jesus as merely an innocent man, some kind of martyr, suffering unjustly. 
Do you know much of the world can be moved to pity by the story of Jesus if they actually believe he existed and they could have no interest in the gospel, no interest in salvation, no awareness of their own sin, yet they may shed a tear when they hear the story of a just man put to death in such a brutal manner by savage killers without a good reason. That's why uh, some of these channels do documentaries on men who've been incarcerated incorrectly, and people will watch that and cry. See, there's never a shortage of people to attach themselves to Christianity at large to surf the emotional waves. They'll be there at special events and revival meetings, and they'll cry and make a big show of religious affections. It's astounding to me. Movies like The Passion, which no, I don't recommend. It's a Catholic production that spends the bulk of its time inventing things about the physical sufferings of Christ and dwells on that over and 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 over again. You know what's interesting, by the way? Do you know the gospel accounts when it comes to the crucifixion? All four of them record it in four words. And they crucified him. There they crucified him. Where they crucified him. How come? Because the physical sufferings of Christ may excite pity, but that is not what purchased your redemption. The sins of the world were atoned for not with the Roman whip, not with the nails through the hands, but with the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God when that world went dark. It's one thing to cry about Jesus' suffering, and oh, I feel so bad He went through that. It's quite another thing to have real repentance. You see, Jesus told his disciples things like this, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. My peace I leave with you. These are upper room discussion items for his disciples. What are these told in verse 28? Imagine Jesus in his bloody state. Struggling up that hill, he turns to these ladies who were weeping and carrying on behind him, and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. And shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And do the hills cover us? For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Rather than telling them, be of good cheer, he tells them, don't weep for me, cry for yourselves. And he says, the days are coming, in verse 28, when you Jewish ladies are going to actually rise up and say, blessed are all the mothers who could not have children. That was foreign to a Jewish mother to think that way. And he says in verse 30 that they're going to cry to the mountains and the hills, fall on us. Now that's a quotation from Hosea 10. It's brought forward into Revelation 6. In verse 31 he says, if they're doing these in a green tree, in other words, 
If the Jewish people are behaving like this when their king is here and the Messiah is here and God the Son is dwelling here bodily and teaching them and working miracles and showing them the way to go, if they're going to do this to me when I'm here, what do you think's going to happen when judgment comes and things really get ugly? You see, that was partially fulfilled right after this. Fully, it will be fulfilled in the Great Tribulation. In A.D. 70, a Roman general, Titus, laid siege to Jerusalem over a five-month period. And the food shortage inside was so severe that multiple women ate their own children. And eventually, the city of David was conquered. The inhabitants were slaughtered or sold into slavery. Remember, uh, when Jesus saw the temple, and they were so impressed with it that it had been being built for 46 years. And keep in mind, it was uh, for three more decades after the death of Christ that they kept adding the finishing touches. You've got almost 80 years it took to beautify that temple. And just seven years later, the whole thing was burned to the ground and all the massive stones were pried apart so the Romans could take the gold that had melted down and run between them. And another interesting historical note, remember Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the Jewish temple in 586 B.C. and that third deportation when he took them captive. But do you know this temple was destroyed on the exact same day on the calendar? 656 years later for the same exact reasons, namely Jewish apostasy and rejection of their God. Most of us have seen pictures of the Roman Colosseum. Uh, most of us are familiar with the persecution of early century Christians that took place in that in that arena. I would love to visit it if I could. But do you know the Colosseum construction began right after the Jewish temple was destroyed? And it was built with Jewish slave labor, and it was built using wealth that had been confiscated from Israel. Now, what about these faces that we mentioned? What happened to Pontius Pilate? A few years after the crucifixion of Christ, he ordered a slaughter of some Samaritans, which led to his losing his position permanently. Rome had enough. Shortly after that, he either committed suicide or was executed. It's not very clear, but he died in disgrace. How about Herod Antipas? Well, also within a few years of the crucifixion, how's this for irony? He was accused of treason. Now, you remember his little bell, Herodias? His brother Philip's wife, who he just had to have? Who he killed John the Baptist over? It was actually the political ambitions of Herodias that led to his downfall. I can hear the words that Paul wrote to the Galatians there. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
So Herod Antipas found himself exiled to Gaul by the Roman emperor. And Herodias herself was permitted to live free, but she was so furious at the emperor, she followed Antipas into exile, where both of them died in utter disgrace around the year A.D. 39. And Barabbas, unless miraculously changed, was no better off. The sacrificial death of Christ demonstrated infinite mercy, but the other thing it did was seal infinite doom. Eternal suffering for those that reject the mercy. To the believer in Christ, it is finished, is a glorious statement. But those that see Jesus like Pilate or Herod or Barabbas or the fake weeping multitude, it is finished, will soon bear a very different meaning. So I wonder, where does your face fit into this crowd? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a historical figure? Is he just somebody we talk about at church? Is he only the one you call on when you find yourself in hot water? Is he the one you tolerate so long as you don't have to bow? Is it simply too costly to follow him? Will it make you lose popularity? The question to that is yes, it will. But is he not worth it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for recording not just what happened to our blessed Lord, but these reactions from people. They're so instructive. I know most of the people here pretty well. But Lord, you know if there's one soul in here or two or three that's old enough to understand, that's old enough to make a choice, Their real disposition towards you is one of defiance. They refuse to be saved. They refuse to bow. Father, if that's the case with anybody here, I pray that you'd pour on the conviction of sin and the awareness of your eyes boring into them. Help them flee to Christ before it's too late. Father, we thank you that whosoever will may come even in the 21st century in jesus name amen